Good morning. Hey, it's great to be back up and having a chance to speak today. Chris talked about the set, and I was thinking about the set this week. Actually, as pieces have been added, I've thought, they're really not that bad. The plan was to have really ugly stuff. And I looked around and thought, you know what, this looks a lot like our first apartment. You know, kind of the same kind. Now, I will say this lamp... Anyway, um, it occurred to me as I was thinking about that stuff, thinking, you know, when Deb and I first got married, when we first got started, and we had, everything that we had was either given to us, or it was yard sale, um, or auction, or hand-me-down stuff, Um, that, that time in our lives, it changed us. It built a fabric of trust. And it deepened our relationship, even in the midst of lots of ugliness. And today, the message, uh, the character that we're going to take a look at, um, that's the story of his life. It's a guy named Joseph. If you've got your Bibles, uh, take them out and turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, there are Bibles in the backs of the front of the pews. We're actually today going to jump through about 22 chapters of Scripture in a little bit. But uh, we'll start at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22. Uh, says this, by faith, Joseph, when his end was near, when he was about to die, he spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. Joseph, when he was ready to die, was able to look into the future 400 years, confident that his descendants would return his body, his bones, to the land of Canaan. He knew that he wouldn't see it, but he had the full assurance that it would happen. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says, says what? Faith is confidence in what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. Confidence and assurance, even though it's not reality yet. At the end of his life, Joseph was confident that the descendants of Israel who had come to Egypt during a famine 70 years earlier were going to return to that land that God had promised to his great-grandfather Abraham. Uh, what I want to do is jump back to, to Genesis, and we're just going to do a, a fast view of Genesis to look at the, the life of Joseph this morning. And I want to start in chapter 50 to, to just describe what um, the writer of Hebrews was talking about. Genesis chapter 50, the first book of the Bible, the very last chapter in that book. Verse 24, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and say, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in the coffin in Egypt. And nearly four centuries later, Joshua 24 tells the story of Joseph being buried in the land where he had grown up. That's great, isn't it? The faith of an old guy before he dies, trusting God, that God will keep his promises. How hard can that be when you're 110 years old? How hard can that be when you're one of the most respected and powerful men in the country? Well, Joseph was not always the elder statesman. He wasn't always respected. He wasn't always surrounded by his family. Um, Speaking of family... What, what's your family like? 
I remember a couple of Christmases ago, I, I was on stage, I was speaking, and I said something to the effect of, you know, some people are not really jazzed about the whole family aspect of Christmas because their family's a mess. I remember that Sunday so vividly because as I said that and looked out, I could see so many people that that brought pain up to the surface, to their faces, to their eyes. People that were just doing gentle nods. I don't, I don't have any desire to go home because it's a mess there. It's a mess. Um, if that's you, let me tell you about Joseph because misery loves company, right? Uh, and Joseph's family was ugly. Joseph's family took the fun out of the word dysfunctional, all right? Uh, it, it was a mess. Here's their story. Joseph's dad is this guy named Jacob. We've been talking about him for the last couple of weeks. Jacob steals the power, the position, the prestige from his twin brother Esau, who's older than him. With the help of his mom, he executes this bloodless coup that allows him to have the blessing and the birthright of his father and brother. Uh, that's there in Genesis chapter 27, 28, if you want to catch up on that. Immediately after that happens, after Jacob steals the blessing um, after Jacob steals the blessing from Isaac, he runs away from his family because he knows his twin brother is going to come after him and he knows that Esau could kill him. He, he flees about 450 miles. It takes him about three weeks to get there to a community where his uncle lives. His uncle, this man named Laban, says, hey, uh, uh, well, um, he comes into this uh, village where his uncle lives and he discovers this beautiful girl who happens to be his first cousin. Uh, she takes him to her father, to Laban, and Jacob stays with them. Jacob is smitten with this girl. Uh, and the scriptures imply that for the next month, basically, he just hangs out with her, helping taking care of the sheep. His uncle, Laban, uh, says to him, Hey, you know, you're, you've been working with me for the last month. What do you want in the way of pay? And Jacob says, I'll tell you what. I'll work the next seven years for you if you let me marry your daughter, Rachel. Um, now, at this point, realize again that this is his first cousin. And at this point in time, it's not that weird to marry your first cousin. It's kind of like West Virginia still today. Um, not, not really. I hope you're not from West Virginia. Sorry about that. Um, the, uh, Genesis 29 says this. Genesis 29 says this. Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Everybody say, aww. Isn't that beautiful? That's, that's incredibly cool. So the seven years go by, and Jacob is ready to get married. He goes to Laban, and the scripture actually says that he says to Laban, I want to make love to your daughter. Um, so they invite all the friends and have a big wedding. The bride's wearing a veil, not the, not the American kind of veil that you can kind of see through and goes up on the head, but more like a burqa where, you know, just kind of her eyes are showing through. After the wedding, after the party, it's dark. The bride and the groom go home. They consummate their marriage. They wake up the next day and, J and uh, Jacob realizes that the woman that he's married is not Rachel, who he has dated and loved for the last seven years, but her older sister, Leah. Um, Leah, incidentally, who is not beautiful, does not have a lo lovely figure, but is instead characterized in Scripture as having weak eyes. Can anyone say, congratulations? You know, it was crazy. That's how Joseph's family starts. 
Joseph is understandably angry at being deceived. But Uncle Laban says, hey, look, you married Leah. If you just spend the next week with Leah, uh, it's the, the wedding week, you can marry Rachel next week, but you have to work another seven years to, to marry her. We, we look at that and we think, that is so messed up on so many levels, right? So messed up on so many levels. But what I want you to do is think for a second what it was like for Leah that night, that next morning. For Leah to, to go through the wedding knowing that she's deceiving her future husband. For Leah who wakes up the next morning and sees the look in Jacob's eyes when he says, this is not what I thought was going to happen at all. Leah hurt deeply. Genesis 29 says, Jacob's love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah, and he worked for Laban for another seven years. So seven years, Jacob and, and, and uh, Rachel, go ahead and get married. So seven years after he's run away from home, he has two wives, and Laban gives his, their two servants to him as well. So seven years after he's run away from home, he has four women that he's taken care of all in the same home. Now, that's an opportunity, right? Uh, dysfunctional or whatever. Here's what happens. Uh, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Leah starts popping out babies, literally, and has four, one right after another. Um, and having babies is a big deal in this culture. Jacob may not love Leah as much, but Leah can give him sons. And she's, Leah is pretty pleased with that. So at the end of less than four years, the score is Leah four, Rachel zero. Um, Genesis 30 starts and Rachel is mad because Jacob can't give her any kids. She, she can't get pregnant. So she makes a decision that's pretty similar to what Jacob's grandmother did. She gives her handmaiden to Jacob and says, sleep with her. If she conceives, I'll raise her son as if he's my own. And Jacob does. Um, side note, gentlemen, if your wife ever encourages you to sleep with another woman, don't, all right? That's a bad idea, all right? Just, just so we're clear on that. Bilhah is the name of Rachel's maid. Jacob sleeps with her, she gets pregnant, and Rachel is actually thrilled about it. So thrilled about it, she says, do it again. And he does. And she has another baby, and, and Rachel counts those two for her. So then, it, within a couple of years, the score is Leah four, Rachel with two assists from Bilhah, two. Um, meanwhile, Leah, <laughs> Leah stops having babies. She isn't happy that Rachel's catching up. It's four to two. It's getting close. So she gives her handmaiden to Jacob and says the same thing. Sleep with her. If she has babies, they'll be like mine. And this woman, Zilpah, the maiden, conceives and has a son. And Leah says, I like this. I can, have, I can increase my family without morning sickness, without contractions. Um, and so Zilpah and Jacob sleep together again. Zilpah gets pregnant, has another son. So the score is now Leah six with two assists from Zilpah, Rachel two with two assists from Bilhah. Uh, this is one messed up family. Are you starting to get a picture? Jacob is sleeping with four different women, all in the same home. They're having his babies they're all having his babies except the one that he really, really loves. In Genesis chapter 30, Rachel and Leah make a deal for who Jacob will sleep with next. And Leah says, uh, Leah says to Jacob, you've got to sleep with me tonight. I made a deal with Rachel. And he does, and God hears her prayers, and she conceives and has a son. And right after that son, she has a daughter, 
and uh, or has another son, and then she has a daughter. So uh, getting close to the end of the seven years, the score is Leah, eight sons with two assists from Zilpah, and one daughter, Rachel, two sons with assists from Bilhah. And verse 22 of Genesis 30 says, Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and enabled her to conceive. And that son that Rachel has is Joseph, the guy that we're talking about today. Hear me, I, I know your family is dysfunctional. I know lots of you have messed up, blended families. But do you understand the level of ugliness that we're talking about that Joseph is born into? There's sibling rivalry, parents playing one against another, there's multiple lives, wives, it's a mess. And to make matters worse, Jacob loves Joseph more than any of the others because he's loved Rachel from the moment he first set eyes on her. And Joseph is her son. Jacob dotes on Joseph. He gives him presents. He favors him in front of the other 11, even though they're all older than he is. And that's not even the whole story. 20 years after Jacob stole the blessing and, uh, from Esau and fled to his uncles, uh, he takes all of his wives, all of his kids, all of his flocks, which he essentially swindled from Uncle Laban. That's a different story. And he heads back home. Rachel, Joseph's mother, steals some idols from Laban. These idols were really, really important to the family because they thought that there was protection that came from these idols. And they thought that these idols um, uh, helped make the women in the home where those idols were more fertile. So um, Laban comes to, to he, he's missing his daughters. He's upset that his daughters are gone. He's upset that his grandchildren are gone, but he's really torqued because the idols are stolen. Laban goes through all of Joseph's camp looking for these idols and can't find them because Rachel is sitting on them. And Rachel says, forgive me, I can't stand up. I'm on my period right now. And um, she looks directly into Laban's eyes and says, we don't have your idols. And Laban goes home. She lies directly to her father. Uh, so Jacob has his whole family, his whole entourage. They're coming back to Canaan. And, and as they're approaching Canaan, he hears that his brother Esau has 400 men waiting for him. This is the brother that he deceived 20 years ago. 20 years he's not seen him. 400 men. And you know what Jacob does? Jacob arranges his family as they get ready to cross a, a, a brook. And he, at the very front, he puts all of his livestock. And then he puts all of his servants. And then he puts Zilpah and Billah and their kids. And then he puts Leah and her kids. And then he puts Rachel and Joseph last. Why did he do that? Because he knew that Esau was coming after him. And he thought, maybe they'll get tired of killing animals and killing people by the time they get to Rachel and Joseph. Ultimately, Esau forgives Jacob. They reconcile. It, it's, it's a great thing. But think about the impact that had on his family, on all of those kids. They knew exactly where they were in the order of importance with their dad. They knew who was more disposable than anyone else. Genesis 34 tells the story of Dinah, Joseph's only sister, being raped uh, and, and the response of his family. Two of his brothers end up killing all of the men in a village, the entire village as a result of, of Dinah being raped. And you know what Jacob's response is? He's mad at the two sons because of the reputation that the family is going to have in this new land. Once they've settled in Canaan, 
Rachel gives birth to a son, but she dies in childbirth. So Joseph has a little brother, but he doesn't have a mom anymore. His mom's dead. Not long after that, the oldest of Jacob's sons, Reuben, sleeps with Bilhah, Rachel's handmaiden. Jacob finds out about it, but as best we can tell from Scripture, Jacob doesn't do anything in response. Finally, at the end of Genesis 36, Jacob comes home to see his father Isaac. It's been at least 20 years since he deceived him. And the Scripture doesn't record any kind of joyous reunion at all. It simply says that Jacob came back to Isaac, Isaac died, and Jacob and Esau buried him. It's sad that there is no emotion there at all. So let's do a quick review of, of Joseph's family. Here's the scorecard on his family. His father's a deceiver. His mom is having a baby-having contest with her sister. He has three stepmoms, ten half-brothers and one half-sister, and they all hate him, incidentally. His mom is a thief and a liar. His dad arranges his family by uh, who he wants to die first. His half-sister is raped and his brothers murder everyone remotely involved, and they take the rest of the village as slaves. His mom dies in childbirth. His half-brother sleeps with his stepmom. His father and grandpa only reconciled just before his grandfather's death. How would you like to be a part of that family? It was a mess. Joseph is growing up in the midst of the mess, in the midst of the ugly, and here's what I want you to take away. Joseph had faith in the midst of an ugly family. Joseph had faith in the midst of an ugly family. No matter how bad your situation is, no matter how many times you've been married, no matter how many people you've slept with, no matter how much you've suffered because you were or were not the favorite, your faith can grow. God can use those circumstances. God can use that mess. God can use that ugliness to help you turn to him, to depend on him, to find your identity in him. It doesn't matter if your stepmom or your dad's girlfriend doesn't like you. God loves you and has a plan for your life. It doesn't matter if your dad is absent, if he's out carousing. God isn't absent. He hasn't left you alone. It doesn't matter if your brothers or sisters or half-brothers or half-sisters are jealous or don't pay any attention to you at all. Or even if you don't have any relationship with them, even though they're your blood relatives, God has a family for you. Even in the midst of his messed up family situation, Joseph hears from God. Genesis 37 describes it this way. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of the other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate, a fancy robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him, and they couldn't speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. 
Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his, as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. We've already said that Joseph had faith in the midst of an ugly family. But at age 17, Joseph's faith was ugly because of his own arrogance. Is he his father's favorite? Absolutely. Is his father foolish for flaunting that favoritism and giving him an incredibly lavish coat that draws attention to that favoritism? Absolutely. Does he go out to check on his brothers and tattle to his father that the sheep are in the wrong place, they're, they're, that they're not being taken care of, that, uh, that the brothers aren't working very hard? Yeah, Joseph does that. Do his brothers despise him as a result of all of that? Yeah, they do. But when Joseph has these dreams and tells them to his brothers and his father, it sure seems like it's Joseph's own arrogance that's ugly. Can I, can I give you some advice? Just because God gives you a word or an insight or a strong prompting from the Holy Spirit, that doesn't mean that you have to share it with everyone. You do have to act on it. You do need, like Mary, to, to, to ponder that in your heart, to treasure it, and, and to just uh, listen to that, figure out what God wants you to do. But you don't necessarily need to tell everyone in sight and to brag on what God has told you. At this point, faith, Joseph, at this point in his life, Joseph's faith was ugly because of his own arrogance. So what happens? His brothers hate him with a passion. His dad sends him out to check on his brothers and the flocks. His brothers see him coming from a long way off, uh, no doubt because of his coat. They're about 80 miles from home in the middle of nowhere, and they decide that nobody's going to know if they kill their brother Joseph. The oldest brother says, no, you know what, let's not kill him. Let's just throw him in a pit. It'll probably scare him to death and end his dreams. Or maybe he'll just die of starvation, and we won't be responsible for his death. So they do. The ten older brothers grab Joseph, they tear off his robe, they throw him in the pit, and they sit down to eat lunch. They're pretty pleased with themselves. While they're eating, a, 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 a caravan of traders comes in sight, and they get the idea, we can sell Joseph as a slave to them. That way we're not killing him, we're not leaving him to rot in a pit. We're going to get rid of our brother, and we're going to make some money on the side. And so that's what they do. Scripture says they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether or not it's your son's. They lied to their father, just like Rachel had lied to her father. Joseph travels to Egypt and is sold to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials. He's the captain of the guard. He's kind of like the, the head of the secret service. Uh, the scripture says, The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his entire household, and he entrusted his, to his care everything he owned. With Joseph in charge, Potiphar didn't concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. 
Joseph is this young, good-looking guy. He's successful. He's blessed by God. He's from a foreign country, and so he's kind of mysterious and exotic. And Potiphar's wife sees him and says, hmm, I want some of that. She comes after him cougar style, right? Joseph says, no way, I can't do that. Your, your husband has entrusted everything to me. I can't do that. He, he says, uh, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Potiphar's wife is persistent and comes after Joseph day after day, but he continually refuses. Again, the scripture says, one day he went in the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside. Potiphar's wife caught him by the cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. Do you know the phrase, hell hath no fury, but a woman scorned like a woman scorned? Potiphar's wife was a woman scorned. She waits until Potiphar comes home. She makes up a story accusing Joseph of attacking her, and Potiphar believes her. Potiphar burns with anger, throws Joseph in prison, and uh, he, he doesn't have any hope of parole because Potiphar is the head of the Secret Service, and he can do that. Joseph's now not just in a foreign country, betrayed by his brothers. He's in prison, and he hasn't done anything wrong. Scripture says, while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Time goes by, and two guys who worked for Pharaoh end up in the same prison as Joseph. Joseph's in charge of them, and as he makes the round one day, he comes on these two prisoners, and they're despondent. They're, they're, they're incredibly sad. And Joseph asks why. They say, we both had dreams, and we don't have anybody to interpret the dreams. Joseph says, you know what? God gives the interpretation of dreams. Tell me your dreams. Joseph then interprets their dreams, and just like he says, three days later, one of them, the guy who tasted the wine, the cupbearer for Pharaoh, is restored to his position with Pharaoh. And three days later, the other guy, the baker for Pharaoh, is executed in an incredibly um, deplorable way. Check it, check it out when you go home today. Joseph asks the one who's going to be uh, restored, the, the cupbearer, to remember him when he gets out. And when he's released, that guy forgets all about Joseph. Joseph is forgotten in prison, wrongfully accused, in a foreign land. He's alone and abandoned. For most of us, that would constitute a justifiable bitterness and depression that would swallow us up. Joseph's circumstances aren't just ugly, they're hopeless. The ugly arrogance that he had earlier in his life, it had vanished on the road to Egypt years ago. Eleven years have passed since he, did, since he had seen his father or brothers. And when God had allowed him to interpret the cupbearer's dreams and he was restored, hope had returned to Joseph, only to be emphatically erased with each day and week and month that proved that Joseph had been forgotten. Is that, is that where you're living today? Hopeless? Feeling forgotten? Feeling betrayed? unjustly accused and condemned for things that you didn't even do? 
Joseph's faith sustained him through an ugliness that lasted years and years. Thirteen years had passed since Joseph had been made a slave. Pharaoh has two dreams, and no one can interpret them, not as advisors, not as religious leaders, not as magicians, not even the writers of National Enquirer. Uh, got that. Pharaoh's getting angry when the cupbearer remembers, you know what, I had a dream a couple of years ago, and there was this guy in prison that interpreted my dream. Maybe he can help. Scripture says, so Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream and no one can interpret it. But I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph said to Pharaoh, I can't do it, but God gives interpretation of dreams. Joseph goes on to tell the dreams of Pharaoh. He tells them that there are going to be seven consecutive years of incredible harvests. There will be more food than they know what to do with. But those seven years are going to be followed by seven years of incredible famine. Nothing will grow, and those seven years will eat away all of the wealth and the plenty of the first seven. The last thing Joseph says to Pharaoh is, you've got to get somebody to manage everything that happens during the good years so that you're ready for the bad ones. Pharaoh accepts Joseph's interpretation. He believes that the dreams are from God, and he determines that Joseph, this guy who was in prison just hours earlier, he's the guy to manage everything, and he places him in charge of it all. Joseph is 30 years old, fresh out of prison, and he's second only to Pharaoh in all of Egypt. In that position, Joseph now rules over Potiphar, who had thrown him into prison. In that position, Joseph now rules over Pharaoh's cupbearer, who had forgotten him for two years in prison. We tend to gloss over the next seven years of incredible harvest, but I'm guessing that they were probably some of the most difficult years for Joseph. He had managed Potiphar's house. He had managed the prison for the warden. But now he was in charge of the future of one of the greatest nations on earth. You can bet that there were hundreds of politicians who were gunning for his job, who were second-guessing every decision that he made, who were... Who were undercutting him and saying, yeah, I don't, I don't even think that interpretation of the dreams was right. Joseph had positional power, but that doesn't mean that he had friends that he could trust. Here's what I don't want you to miss. Joseph had faith in the midst of an ugly family situation. Joseph had faith in spite of his own ugly arrogance. And Joseph had faith in the midst of the ugliness of injustice and abandonment. And yet his faith never wavered. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh and said, It's because God has made me forget all my troubles and all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said, It's because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. The rest of the story is incredible. Joseph prepares Egypt for the famine. The famine comes and it devastates the world. Back in Canaan, uh, Joseph's father and brother, his stepmothers, the whole tribe are hungry because of the famine. So Jacob sends the ten older sons to buy grain in Egypt. Scripture says as soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he pretended to be a stranger and he spoke harshly to them. Where'd you come from? He asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. 
Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they didn't recognize him. And Joseph remembered his dreams about them. I don't have time to tell the rest of the story this morning except to say that 21 years after Joseph had had those dreams, they come to pass. In an incredible story of espionage, brokenness, guilt, and reconciliation, Joseph redeems his brothers and his father. He brings them to live out of certain death in Canaan. He brings them to live in Egypt. If you're hearing that story today for the first time, you've got to go home today and read it for yourself. Start in Genesis chapter 37. It's better than any movie. It's better than any novel. It's better than any Hallmark special, okay? Um, Read it and see if you don't become a blubbering idiot like me. The whole family clan, 66 people in all, all their flocks, all their servants come to Egypt and there's an incredible reunion that takes place between Joseph and his father. 17 years later, Jacob, Joseph's father, dies. Genesis 50 says this, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent a word to Joseph saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. And then they wrote a note on the bottom of the note. Please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I'll provide for them, and I'll provide for you and for your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Let me just wrap up with four quick lessons from the story of Joseph. These are the things I want you to walk away with. The first is this, you can't thwart the plan of God. Understand that no matter what happens in your life, no matter how bad it is, what kind of setting you're in, what kind of position you're in, you can't thwart the plan of God. God's plan is going to be accomplished. The question is whether or not you're going to be willing, whether, you're going to, whether or not you're going to exercise faith in that. Second thing is this. Even in the midst of a horrible family situation, in the midst of terrible injustice, even when you're feeling completely abandoned for decades, God is still holding you. He still has a plan. What Satan means for evil, God wants to use for good. Keep the faith. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Third thing's this. The object of our faith is not our circumstances. It's not in our circumstances. It's not in our family. It's not in our own abilities. It's in the living God who made us, who loves us, who wants us to trust him. Joseph's faith in the return of his people to Canaan wasn't based on Joseph, it wasn't based on Pharaoh. It was confidence and assurance in God. Last thing, just as Joseph redeemed his brothers who had sinned against him horribly, Jesus has redeemed you. 
Let me say that again. Just as Joseph redeemed his brothers, Jesus has redeemed you. Uh, you know, if you've got the app open, you'll see that there's a sermon-based question, a question for small groups that's down at the bottom that asks this question. When you read through the story of Genesis, the story of Joseph, every name has a meaning. And the question that I put at the end there is, if God were to rename you today, what would that name be? Would it be bitter? Would it be angry? Would it be broken? Would it be hurt? Would it be joyful? Would it be redeemed? I've got a friend who's been through some wars. She has tattooed on her arm the word worthy. Is that great? Worthy. What would your name be if you were to be renamed? We're going to stand together and we're going to sing. And I want to invite you to come down front and pray if you feel so led. I, I think there's so much in the story of Joseph that applies to our lives. Maybe you need to forgive. Maybe you need to be forgiven. Maybe you need to reconcile with somebody. Maybe you just need to recognize that in the midst of a whole bunch of mess and ugly, God loves you. Let's stand together.